Welcome to News and Brews. I'm Mike Heslin. And I'm Errol Yabuke. And this week, Errol will take us on a journey through the world of international travel, a little stop back in Glasgow, and uh, Belarus, which is uh, not as lovely this time of year as we might hope. Yeah, I, I really miss international travel, but uh, not to the Belarusian-Polish border. So after that little journey, uh, Mike actually takes us on an economic journey. And I have to say, you never knew how much you wanted to hear about this week's release of economic indicators until you hear Mike talk in his dulcet tones about the difference between fiscal and monetary policy and why they actually really matter. So I promise there's a payoff at the end of this. Like it's almost like an M. Night Shyamalan twist at the end. So don't <laughs> don't turn it off just because you hear that. <laughs> no, it's uh, way to the end. There's a really, really good twist. This is a great episode. Um, I hope you enjoy it. Let's do it. Hey, Aero. Hey, Mike. It's good to see you. Good to see you. As, uh, our, as it always is on a Tuesday night. You're you're looking nice and chipper. Yeah, I think this is going to be a good one for people to uh, check out the video excerpt that comes on the News and Brews pod social media because like very representative of you just looking so put together <laughs> and me just looking like such a, sl- a schlub. I, I don't agree. Um, however, uh, I did get a haircut because one of the things that we did this weekend is we took like family photos, which let me tell you how fun family photos are with a 20 month old and a four year old, (laughs) this poor photographer who was phenomenal, by the way, Erica Lane, she was so patient and is just like a wonderful human being and and just did the best that she could. Um, But I was starting to look a little bit like a mangy puppy. And uh, I like at the very last minute on Friday, I was like, I should I have so much to do, but I should like for the purposes of my marriage, probably <laughs> like go and get a haircut. So I did. Amazing. So I'm looking a little bit more put together because I was forced to be a little bit more put together. That's just sort of unfair to those of us who show up in a t-shirt to this podcast every week though, you know? <laughs> I mean, I put on a tie just for the pod. <laughs> just for the pod. You know that. Perfect. Perfect. It's, it's all for you, Mike. It's all for you. <laughs> All for the fans. What are you drinking uh, tonight? I am drinking a uh, from Three Stars Brewing Company, which is a DC brewing company. They're sort of known for their like peppercorn saison. Mm. I feel like that's the one I've had before. I walked into the Harris Tea this evening, and this Diamonds Are Forever caught my eye, and it caught my eye because uh, a I was on the phone, literally on the way to Harris Teeter with a friend of mine talking about very relevant things to what was on the beer can. I will not mention who this friend is. I do not want to out him and his plans, but I felt inspired to get it. And I have to say, it's really delicious. In addition to being foreshadowing, it's very delicious. Nice foreshadowing for a mysterious friend who hopefully listens to the pot. I hope so. But it's a, it's a hazy pale ale. And uh, I wish him the best of luck. Would commit this hazy pale ale to him, although I will just probably be drinking it in his honor. Lovely. I've got a DC brewed hard apple cider from brewery in Northeast or a cidery, I guess, in Northeast DC called Supreme Core, mm, which is like an it. excellent DC cider pun. Yeah. And this is their pound of gold. And uh, it's actually like 
a really lovely hard cider. It's got this tartness to it where it kind of sticks to the top of your mouth a little bit, almost like a, like a reverse brain freeze. Hmm. So whatever the opposite of brain freeze is, that's what I'm feeling right now. Oh, okay. I'm into that. I don't like brain freeze. I'm also totally here for cider season. I'm, I'm really, I was like a little apprehensive about getting a cider, but now that you have opened the floodgates, I think listeners are going to experience lots of cider. Uh, what do you say? Should we get into the first round? Let's get into it. So let's start with where fairly well-trodden territory, uh, infrastructure. And I know, Mike, we're going to talk about this later in our main story when we check in on the arc of some of our, some of the things that we've talked about economics and otherwise, but it's worth pointing out that yesterday there was a ceremony at the White House because President Biden finally, finally, finally signed an infrastructure bill into law. Uh, and it, it, I don't know if you saw footage of, of the ceremony, but it, his remarks at least were uh, decidedly of a, I told you so kind of feel. Mm. And, and that was related to the fact that he told us that he could do this, that he could pull off a bipartisan bill and, and everybody, all the punditry was like, Oh, you know, this harpens back to a time in DC where that was possible and rancor and it's not possible. And, and you know what, he kind of proved everybody wrong. Uh, yeah, he did it. He did it. I also remember a lot of commentary that uh, basically said splitting the overall Build Back Better agenda into two bills, you know, which which we now know as one being the bipartisan infrastructure bill, the other being now called the Build Back Better bill, uh, was was not a good idea. And I think in this moment, at least, there is um, feels like it'd be very worrisome if the entire agenda were being held up in the way that the Build Back Better bill is being held up right now, which we will talk about later. But the fact that they you know, have a real accomplishment to point to that has broad support across the country that is a really significant investment um, you know, is, is worth celebrating. Yeah. I mean, Mitch McConnell voted for this thing. Like it's, you know, it's a, it is a bipartisan bill and it adds uh, you know, $550 billion of new spending that was, I would argue, really critically needed. Um, and so, uh, you know, the overall top line is what you hear in the news, 1.2 trillion, but, you know, over half of that is actually just kind of re-upping existing programs. But the, mm -hmm. the $550 billion is worth spending a little bit of time talking about. I mean, about half of that, $284 billion of that is, is meant for surface transportation upgrades. And the other half, 266 billion is for enhancing what they're calling core infrastructure. Yep. And so I, th I think the, the biggest winner for this is the United States of America and, you know, our crumbling infrastructure. And I would say a secondary winner is uh, probably Secretary Pete, um, who is going to be responsible for implementing via the Department of Transportation about half of that 550 billion. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see kind of how out in front he is. He's been a big part of selling the bill and you know, including the legislative strategy. It, it'll be really interesting to see how publicly front and center he is through the implementation of it. This is a, a pretty big pile of investment to, to manage and to, to be in charge of. Um, and clearly he's someone who has ambitions and, and a load of talent. And it'll be, be interesting to see kind of how, how the administration as a whole positions him as the face of the implementation of this bill. Yeah. And I would imagine he, I don't know about face, but he's certainly going to be a messenger 
um, mm-hmm. and, and key messenger. I think one of the things in addition to that, that I'll be watching is how much of a double-edged sword is this for secretary Pete? Cause there are elements in Congress that are really opposed to this and anything that the Biden administration is going to do. And so there's going to be lots of oversight and every dollar is going to be counted and there's going to be, you know, researchers on the Tucker Carlson show that are trying to find any kind of semblance of waste. And that's going to be elevated and researchers and air quotes on that. Yeah. Agreed. But, you know, we're, we're talking about mayor Pete. So, you know, shout out to McKinsey or, <laughs> yeah, they, they did. They, uh, they released a really nice report breaking down the infrastructure bill. So we'll link to it in the show notes for anyone else, uh, who wants to read it, but just some really helpful visuals, uh, kind of breaking down where the money is going, who's administering it, which states are getting the most, how it breaks down on a percentage basis. Um, I found it really helpful as someone who even has, you know, done my own spreadsheeting of some of the things in this bill and, and thought critically about it to see it kind of visually represented, uh, one next to the other was, was helpful. So shout out to, uh, the authors of, of that report, Sarah O'Rourke, Justin Badlam, Tony Demedio, Adi Kumar, Rob Dunn. We'll, we'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, serious question. And I need a serious answer. If we weren't doing the podcast, would you still have a spreadsheet of the infrastructure? (laughs) No, that's why I love doing the podcast. It makes me do these things. (laughs) I think you're lying. I think you would still have the spreadsheet (laughs) (laughs) and you'd probably have a pivot table. Listen, I think this is generally good news. Um, I know we're going to dig in a little bit on kind of the spending and and the effects on the economy and everything, but um, kudos and credit where credit's due to to the president and team Biden. Next, I I wanted to move. So I'm actually going to New York on Friday uh, and it's going to actually be the first time that I'm on a plane uh, Ah. since last January. I know you've traveled, Mike, but I have not. I'm like kind of excited slash apprehensive about it, but it made me think about there. We're not back yet. Like we're not normalized in terms of travel and especially not international travel, but there was actually something pretty significant that happened last week in international travel. Yeah. Uh, So it's basically the announcement was that, you know, vaccinated folks, uh, vaccinated according to the CDC definition, which is conspicuously not the Kremlin's definition. uh, (laughs) Or Aaron Rodgers' definition. (laughs) Yeah. Immunized people are not going to be able to, (laughs) um, but basically fully vaccinated folks from overseas are going to be able to come to the United States, uh, not just for essential travel, but for things like heaven forbid tourism. And so, you know, after the normal two weeks, kind of after your second dose of the Pfizer Moderna and, the, you know, after the one dose of the J&J, folks can come. And, and I think that one really important note on this is that they're also saying if it's not just those vaccines, it's if the vaccine has been approved by the WHO for emergency authorization, mm which for example, the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine has not been approved in the United States, but it has been approved by the WHO and they're going to accept that. But we're still not letting the Russian one in. Is that right? Yeah. The Sputnik whatever is, is a no-go and the Chinese whatever is a no-go. I think in, mm. you know, in part because their efficacy has not certainly been as high as the, as the other ones. There is, I think India is producing a version of the Oxford AstraZeneca one. And so presumably that one would be accepted. It's, it's exciting times. They're apparently accepting paper and digital, 
which is a little bit concerning to me because I mean, I, I'm going to carry around. I, I even have like, I made the, the COVID vaccine people like sign my yellow um, international vaccine card. Do you know what oh, I'm nice. about? So I, I don't, I, but I, I can picture it. Just smile and none. Um, <laughs> so basically since the 1990s, I have had this like, you know, vaccine record that I carry with me in my passport wherever I go. And so it's like typhoid and TDAP and like yeah, all this your, stuff. your references to like traveling and doing things internationally are like my references to crappy movies from the nineties. We're just on different wavelengths here. <laughs> it's, it's fair. It's fair. I don't know which one of us is winning in that competition. <laughs> but <laughs> I have tried to do the like digital passport thing in DC and it just like, hasn't worked for me. I don't know if they don't like my name or what, but uh, I haven't been able to figure out the, the like digital passport. I also have not. It's, I think we're going to realize again and again in the coming months how much of a self-own it is to have an entire party in our country with significant power that fought tooth and nail to prevent anything resembling a nationwide or international digital uh, vaccine passport from being a reality. Because like we're all walking around with these pieces of paper with no unified system to digitize it, and it's going to become really important. Uh, you know, barring some other advances that we'll talk about later in the show. But, um, you know, already a lot of establishments in DC, uh, at least are requiring proof of vaccination just to enter. They're lifting the mask mandate next week. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah, I saw that. That's super exciting. Already but, a hot topic in my office. In my oh, already a hot topic in my office, which is my house. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, we're just going to see that we need this again and again. And we have, I saw recently somebody found in a, an antique shop, a vaccine card from the polio vaccine rollout, like 60, 70 years ago. Hmm. And it looks exactly like the COVID vaccine cards. So it also doesn't fit in people's wallets. <laughs> so it also uh, has no uh, digital equivalent from, you know, the year 1950. And it, it just like, people are going to be losing this. They're going to get destroyed. Uh, and it could be a real problem for a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm expecting to lose mine at some point or for it to end up in the toy chest at some point. And <laughs> um, I'm, I keep wondering, it's like, are people going to accept my like janky photo on, on iTunes photos or like, yep. I, you know, on my iPhone, I think it's going to be a little messy, honestly, the, like the, the travel thing. I mean, it was, I don't know if you saw the coverage of this, Mike, but I mean, it was, the coverage was really I think really heartwarming. I mean, every journalist was like, let me find a picture of someone hugging someone else in an airport and mm -hmm. let me like slap that on the, the, the article about this, which I found beautiful and, and wonderful after 20 months of separation. But I think like, there's so many ins and outs and caveats and, you know, is this document legit? And is that, you know, oh, it's in a different language. Like, what are you going to do? Oh, you have to talk to that person. It's just going to be really messy. Lines are going to be really long. People are going to be annoyed, but like, hopefully this is like short-term pain, long-term gain. Totally agree. That part of the story is, is heartwarming, a little messy, but what has struck me is what we haven't heard anything about from the administration as all this has been rolling out, as we have been opening the borders to international travelers and leisure travelers again, which is the Title 42 piece of Trump's executive order is still being used to deny asylum seekers at the border a hearing that they have a right to on public health grounds 
which Trump's own CDC officials are now admitting before Congress had no scientific basis to begin with. And yet the Biden administration has been unwavering in its continuation of this anti-immigration Trump policy. I mean, don't get me started on this. I, I think it's um, it's something that's got to go. I mean, one of the things that I immediately think about is we still don't have Biden administration political appointees across the Department of Homeland Security, which is mm. in part responsible for what you just said. And so you've got a lot of holdovers in acting positions or, you know, a lot of positions vacant. Like there's as far last I checked last week, there wasn't a confirmed uh, director of the Customs and Border Patrol Agency. There wasn't even a number two, which is also a political position. Wow. So it's like, Things like revoking Title 42 should happen regardless of whether there's politicals there. But but I think like there the policies on the books are going to be executed by the people who are basically the same people as the last time it, without further political direction. And, and it's not it's not giving an excuse for, you know, lack of action, which I would agree with you. Like, let's just get rid of Title 42. It's dumb. It's inhumane. It doesn't even have a basis in public health. But I will take this opportunity to point out that Josh Hawley is holding up every nomination of every political appointee nomination that he can see he is holding up until uh, I think it's like until Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and Tony Blinken, Secretary of State, resign. That's like his his line. So he's basically holding up all nominations. I'm going to uh, make a point not to talk about Josh Hawley at length on this episode. And uh, we should move be, on because be I'm starting to wave my hands. <laughs> so, uh, so do you think we should move on to something a little happier and talk about Belarus? I, I'm not sure that I enjoyed taking people on a trip to Ethiopia last last week, but I, I did enjoy the process of like kind of framing things in terms of history. And so with your indulgence, I will do a little bit of the same with regards to what's going on in Belarus. So consider me buckled up. Excellent. So the, what's, what's happening, if folks haven't seen, is that there are basically migrants who are stuck on the border between Belarus, which is a country in Eastern Europe, bordered by Russia and Ukraine and Poland and Lithuania and Latvia, people stuck in between like the Polish border and the Belarusian border. So on, on the surface, it looks like, oh, these people are trying to enter irregularly. What's going on? You know, it's a, it's a quote unquote migrant crisis. It's about 4,000-ish. Like with many of these stories, there's just like so much more that led up to this that I think are make what's going on now like much more interesting. Mm -hmm. So basically since July, there's been this increase. And, and when I say increase, like you think about per year attempted irregular crossings from Belarus to Lithuania were like 70 people per year, right? And just in July of this year, that was 2,600. Wow. Um, and so there's, you know, that's, you know, no coincidence, there is an increase, right? So to, to explain what's going on, I first have to explain a little bit about the president of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, and specifically about his pretty consistent awfulness. So Belarus became an independent country in 1991 uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union. And in 1994, they created a presidency, and the first president of Belarus was Alexander Lukashenko, and he won that election in what is basically the country's only free elections post-independence. So, Independence meaning like post-fall of the Soviet Union. Correct. 
And so he has outlasted nine prime ministers, all dudes. Uh, and despite his, you know, excellent sinewy white hair strategically combed over what is definitely not a balding head, uh, hmm. he's definitely not stepping down. Case in point of him not stepping down is that, and, and this might bring us to a point where, you know, regular listeners may have first heard the of the country of Belarus is last summer, there was a presidential election there, and it resulted in him being reelected to a sixth term. And so at the time, U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo referred to that election as not free or fair, which I think has characterized most of their elections. But unlike the last time, people immediately took to the streets because opposition president- I think that may be the first unironic quote of Mike Pompeo we've had on News and Brews. So yeah, I mean- Take a sip for that one. He's, yeah, I will take a sip for that. He's not wrong. And I think he was right to point it out. It's, it's, uh, the irony is, it's his lack of statement about anything about our own elections, but that's <laughs> neither here nor there. Um, so basically, people took to the street because the opposition presidential candidate who I'm going to attempt her name, it is Svetlana Shikanoskaya. And she, Svetlana Shikhanovskaya claimed that she had won between 60 and 70% of the vote, which who knows, she might've been right. But basically people took to the street and they were like, we're not okay with this. It's time, you know, this kind of tracks with global protest movements being on the rise. Anyways, things just started spiraling from there. So when those mass protests erupted, Lukashenko reacted like a dictator would. Uh, he reacted poorly. He was then slapped uh, on the wrist uh, from the EU as a persona non grata, which is basically, like I said, a slap on the wrist. He then showed up at the presidential palace last late last summer via hel- a helicopter with a flak jacket and a machine gun, which people should Google that. It was a fun image. Um, so basically just your kind of usual dictator stuff. Who doesn't want the leader of the country doing like Rambo cosplay in the middle of a crisis? Yeah, with an excellent comb over. I mean, it was just <laughs> straight out of straight out of uh, you know a B Russian movie. And so, the the other thing that folks might remember is that earlier this year there was a flight that was like in Eastern Europe that was like essentially hijacked. I do was, remember this. That was forced to land in in Minsk. And and what happened was there was a flight from Athens to Vilnius in in Lithuania. And that to go from Athens to Vilnius, you had to fly over Belarus. And so Belarusian air traffic controllers forced it to land, falsely claiming that there was a bomb on board. And so just to keep it safe, they sent up a MiG-29 aircraft to, you know, escort it to safety. And, uh, you know, in Minsk, Belarus, turns out it was because there was an opposition journalist on the flight that uh, Lukashenko really didn't like. That was a crazy story. Yeah, it just, it, it was, it was wild. And, and the story kind of continues to get crazier, right? Because basically after the election shenanigans and that, the EU was like, okay, this persona non grata thing is not enough. So the EU and the US imposed sanctions against him and his cronies. He blames it all on fake news and denies it all, of course. Um, but essentially, this brings us to where we are now, or at least over the summer, which is he's pissed off about these sanctions. And so he, as, as a kind of a way of getting back at the EU, I guess, decides, comes up with this like diabolical plan that he's going to try to send irregular migrants 
to the EU's border, which he, you know, Belarus borders the EU in, in Poland. And so primarily from Iraq, these Belarusian travel agents working together with the state-owned airline, Belavia, they kind of advertise these trips, these journeys that Iraqis can take to the EU and they make it sound great. And, and you know, oh, for only $2,000, you can do this. So they're basically getting paid. The national, Lukashenko's national airline was getting paid to bring these uh, migrants to Minsk, where they were then put on buses and bused to the, the border. And of course, they didn't have, they were selling a false bill of goods. Like they didn't have the ability to gain access to EU for these people. And so what's, what's the goal here? So the goal seems to be like, he's pissed and he wants to use these vulnerable people to create a crisis on the border with the EU and cause them to amass troops at the border. And, you know, maybe this, my kind of theory, I talked with a news, Newsweek journalist last week, and my, my kind of theory on this was, maybe trying to stoke right-wing politics and politicians across the EU. Like, look, migration's bad. It's creating all of this, you know, stuff on the border. We should be anti-migration. Perhaps that's that's one of his goals. And is 4,000 people, like, enough to create a crisis at that I mean, scale? we're talking about it on News and Brews. <laughs> As we know, given the news and bruise bump to Lukashenko's <laughs> drummed up crisis. Uh, no, I, yes. I mean, the, the answer is yes, because, you know, these folks were bused to the border and the, the Polish military responded by sending like 17,000 troops or something. And the EU responded by providing a whole bunch of funding to increase fencing. And, and you had these images of, yeah, it's only 4,000 people, but like you had these images of vulnerable people who had been sold a false bill of goods in the winter right. in icy conditions, like intense and outside, like freezing and, and, and people, well, including children have died nice in the winter. No, yeah. it's not. No. I mean, it's cold as shit. And so people have died, including kids. And so the, if, if his desired effect was publicity, then desired effect achieved, but I think he's, I don't know what he was trying to accomplish in terms of other than like pissing people off because there's more sanctions coming his way. And in fact, the Bolivia Airlines, which sounds like something straight out of a Netflix Christmas movie for, for the record, is now not able to transport Iraqis and even other folks from places like Dubai and Istanbul, making their flights even more difficult. So, And so what's the fate of these people who are now like stuck in between worlds at the border? So as of taping, they're still stuck and there's, you know, increasing reports of Belarusian troops behind them and Polish troops in front of them and them really not having any place to go and, and humanitarian agencies have not been really allowed in. And so something's got to give. Uh, my, my hope is that humanitarian agencies will be allowed in soon to be able to keep people alive. Hmm. I think the next step is that folks are going to be returned to Iraq. Either they're going to be like go into Poland only to then be sent back to Iraq, or there's going to be some way of, you know, them either staying in Belarus or, or being sent back to Iraq. I, I think there's, unless there are credible asylum claims, which 
you know, I, I was reading somewhere that they've processed hundreds of asylum claims and like every single one has been denied. Does the EU have any notion of like calling his bluff on this, particularly if they can stop the airline from taking more people to the border, right? If this is a crisis that will just like spiral, like find a way to take in these 4,000 people and you know, so end the it fear, right there. Yeah. I mean, the fear there is that he in a way wins and, and then like has more carte blanche to do other things and similar bad actors will try to do other similar things like, you know, use migrants, vulnerable people as uh, essentially weapons of geopolitics. Hmm. And so that's, that's a big fear is that like, you can't let this, whatever success looks like, you can't look back, you can't let this succeed is I think where the EU is coming from. And they're taking a pretty hard line on it. I think what they'll probably end up doing is they'll probably end up taking people in, processing them, and then repatriating them to Iraq. Interesting. Well, hope for the best and hope that some warmth comes to these people soon. Yeah, seriously. I, I wish them all the warm blankets and, and humanitarian access. Last international story. So I feel like I, I've been driving the, the first this round. Is a meaty, this is a meaty first round. It's a meaty sure. first round, lots of me talking. So I'm looking forward to going back to drinking and listening <laughs> to you talk about the economy, which is one of my favorite pastimes. But before we do that, I would like to commend all of the listeners, our last episode where we talked to James Cerrito about COP26, the first week of COP26. He was in Glasgow. He's uh, part of the Clean Air Task Force, and he works on methane, or as the Brits call it, methane. Had some really fascinating stories and, and stuff coming out of COP. And so I thought we would just have a quick roundup since this was everybody has now heard the acronym COP and now might be interested in what some of the final takeaways were. Um, so, Mike, I'm interested if you've been following this, what your takeaways are, but maybe I can start with mine. So the first one is that Greta Thunberg is not impressed. Um, I did see that. Yeah, she's still pissed. She's pissed not because there wasn't an agreement, because the but because the agreement doesn't go far enough. Um, and I think that she, that's her role is to just drive. You know, she she was instrumental in a hundred thousand plus person protest in Glasgow during a during a pandemic, and I think her role is to drive change. And so, and I I do think there was a really compelling parallel narrative coming out of Glasgow of what was happening with the activists and the organizers and yeah. the energy that was building. Um, and, you know, we've been part of youth movements in, in our day um, and, and they, those opportunities to come together, particularly in like a late stage pandemic type moment when a lot of people haven't had that uh, human connection for so long. It, it sounded like, and, and I would recommend specifically Pod Save the World interviewed a couple of different organizers from a couple of different groups last week, really interesting interviews, but you could just feel the energy and the uh, feeling they had of, of what they're a part of and what they're building towards. And, you know, that they're really playing the long game and that this uh, was a really important step for a lot of these organizations at laying the groundwork for years and years of advocacy and change making to come. Which is kind of what James talked about too. I mean, the Clean Air Task Force is, is the fact that there was this methane pledge actually gives them something really concrete to talk about with countries. And so I think it's things like that that 
uh, are, are a significant result of advocacy. And so more power to them. I'm glad they also got it out of their system because next year's COP is going to be in Egypt. And I'm not sure that there's going to be a whole lot of appetite hmm. to have mass protests in Egypt. In terms of you know, Greta Thunberg and, and others being unhappy with the outcomes, I think there was one late stage change that got a lot of publicity, which was that there are some some of the more you know, larger emitters and more heavily fossil fuel dependent nations basically changed the final statement at the last minute to no longer say that we will work toward ending our dependence on fossil fuel, but saying we'll work toward slowing our dependence on fossil fuels, um, which which is disappointing. I mean, I think the best summary take I saw someone on Twitter put out was just everyone knows what we need to do to slow the path of climate change and the people in decision-making roles are just not willing to do it right now. I would agree with all that. And I would add, yeah, they, they talked about like moving towards whatever wishy-washy language on fossil fuels. And then that my favorite was like their big stand was they were going to end inefficient subsidies for fossil fuels. That hmm. was like the big stand that they made. However, the words fossil fuels have never been in a climate agreement before including in the Paris climate deal. Um, really? And yes. And so step in the right direction. John Kerry made that, made that point. So listen, I mean, my, my sort of top takeaways are, are that there was a pact that was reached. It was the Glasgow Climate Pact, which history will, will remember COP26 as the Glasgow Climate Pact, not as COP26. We've talked about the fact that nobody knows what COP is. So they did agree to something. And the the sort of broader takeaways that I have seen from folks who were there and, and journalists and whatnot is that, you know, the Paris climate deal talked about limiting warming of the climate to 1.5 degrees Celsius. And, and that's going to take significant mitigation efforts. And that effort seems to be still alive, but a little bit on life support. Like there's a heartbeat, but it's like a pretty soft, slow heartbeat. More accurate predictions are more in like the 1.92 degree Celsius by the end of the century, which, you know, doesn't sound like a lot, but, but it would be really catastrophic to a lot of places around the world. That is one takeaway. The other is the fossil fuels, which we talked about. You know, the other thing that there was somewhat of a last minute change was that Coal was on track, or big coal, maybe, as we've talked about here on the on the pod. Coal was on track to have a very bad summit, and they had like a slightly less very bad summit by the end. Hmm. And I don't know the exact text, but it was it got watered down a little bit. It, it's similar, like phasing out coal by 2025 was changed to like thinking about or moving towards or language like that. That's all right. Coal can dust itself off and just come home to the warm embrace of Joe Manchin, only getting of, warmer. Of West Virginia. I, the last thing I'll say on, on COP26 is I think a huge annoyance to me and I think missed opportunity is that the effects of climate change are already being felt right now. And so we can't just be only focused on mitigating kind of warming. That's, that's really important. Um, and we need to target this 1.5 and, and whatever. But the effects are already baked in by most estimations. The IPCC report talked about how the effects of climate change are essentially baked in until like 2050. And so people are feeling those effects now. And so there was this, this effort to provide a fund for countries, primarily developing countries, on the front lines of, of those who are feeling the effect. And that got shot down. This is called in climate parlance, it's the loss and damage 
part. Basically, there was a proposed fund, like a sort of a COVAX, but for you know loss and damage relates to climate change in developing countries, and, and that got shot down, which I thought was really disappointing. Now, that's different from the fund they agreed to at Paris, right? The $100 million, which I think they actually funded at this COP. They, they did. I mean, there, there is some effort to the, the most trite thing to say, which is accurate, but it's like the rich countries are disproportionately responsible for the effects of climate change and the effects are being felt disproportionately by developing countries who are not responsible for climate change. Mm-hmm. And so therefore there's a mismatch. Rich countries need to help poor countries. That didn't go much beyond what was agreed in, in Paris, which I think most people think is vastly insufficient. I will say that our conversation with James last week, I found way more hopeful than I was expecting. Um, but I think this this conversation is, you know, a kind of snap back to reality moment. You know, it's it's not it's not fixed. They they haven't been on News and Brews to fix it yet. We'll uh, we'll keep them keep an eye on it and continue supporting and cheering on the people who are working hard to make change around this. Indeed. All right. Should we move on to our main story? Let's talk about the economy. We're talking about COVID and the economy this week, and that may seem like it's a little bit of a uh, cop-out main story because we could have done that any given week for <laughs> the last two years. Uh, but There was nothing going on this week, so we had to pull <laughs> one out. <laughs> well, and, and here's what it was, is this is actually a really good example of why I love doing this podcast and, and talking to you about the news every week is as I was seeing stories come in piece by piece, and there are actually a lot of economic indicators that got updated this week. There were some pretty big announcements on uh, COVID treatment and other public health issues. And, and there, there was some interesting, if depressing developments in Congress. And looking at it and thinking about you know, how we would wanna talk about it, started creating some connections between all these stories and, and just having you know the background of all the conversations we've had about this over the last several months, you start to kind of see how one piece affects another. Mm. And, and so I, I wanted to do our main story this week on code and the economy, but it, it really comes together, I think, in a, in a single narrative. It's like a, like a Charles Dickens novel, but like less industrial and way more depressing. <laughs> um, more depressing than a Charles Dickens novel. So we'll start. We'll start with the economic news. Uh, October inflation numbers came out last week, showing that prices increased 6.2 percent year on year and 0.9 percent month over month. This marks five straight months of inflation running above five percent in the U.S. And uh, you know, going forward from here, I'm really going to be looking more at the the month over month numbers than the yearly numbers, mm. uh, just because we prices aren't going to go down. Right. So we've basically already reached a level where we're five, six, now more than 6% above where prices were a year ago. So that 6.2% year over year number is sort of our baseline. So the question is not, you know, do we stay at that level that's 6% above where we were a year ago, but do we continue going up at, a, at a, an accelerated pace from here? And 0.9% increase in one month is really significant, right? That's yeah, it's a lot. Like a, the equivalent of a 12% yearly increase. Uh, so that's, that's definitely, you know, of course, something we'll continue to watch. But um, just in terms of the lens I'll be using on inflation from here, it, it really, to me, will, will become evident in the monthly numbers. But, but at some point, those, I mean, when we saw the year-on-year increasing was, what, early summer? 
kind of like the inflationary pressures kind of growing sort of spring and summer, right? Yeah. As, as things started to reopen, right. We had the vaccination campaign really start in like April in earnest. And so I think it was, you know, June ish timeframe that inflation started picking up. So, so my point is in, in June, 2022, if the year on year numbers are still 6%, then that's like, that's scary because exactly, you already, exactly. so it's like, I I'm with you on the month over month thing that you're going to do until we get to June. And yeah. then I'm going to be like, actually, this is when, when inflation started to be on the, the radar year on year. That's, that's what I'll be watching. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm with you on that. Um, then today, uh, the commerce department released data showing that retail sales increased 1.7% monthly and 16.3% year on year in October. So this is measured in dollars spent. So higher prices explain some of that increase, but consumer retail spending is increasing almost twice as fast as inflation month over month and almost three times as fast year over year. So people are out there buying more and more despite higher prices, meaning demand fundamentally is strong. I wonder what, what would happen if you like took Amazon out of this? I, I wonder, and this is total aside, but I'm just thinking of like, the Jeff Bezos line item in my own budget, which I hate, but also tends <laughs> to still be a thing. Has spending shifted so much online, let's say? Well, they, they do split out online shopping, right? So online shopping uh, was up 4% month over month and 10.2% uh, from a year ago. And 10. that's even 10.2% you know, wow. from like mid-pandemic online shopping rates. Um, so Whoa. so that is that is continuing its surge upward. And I think you saw people just reach a new level of comfort doing more online when they were forced to right over the pandemic. So not hugely surprising there. Um, Certainly good news for Jeff Bezos though. (laughs) So, so that's the demand side, right? Demand, you know, is, is strong. And and that really goes to the uh, idea of stagflation, which we've talked about, right? The idea that you could have a situation where you have inflation of the, the money supply, but, demand actually being really weak, which puts you in kind of this quagmire. So we're, we're not quite seeing that, right? Demand which doesn't strong. seem where we are. Yeah. But we did also get some supply side numbers today. So manufacturing and industrial production had both fallen in September, which was really concerning to people, hmm. uh, but both rose and rose more than expected in October. So manufacturing by 1.2% month over month and all industrial production by 1.6% month over month. And then capacity utilization, which looks at, you basically take all of the productive capacity in the economy. Uh, They do this on a plant by plant survey and you estimate how much of it is being used to produce output in a given month. So what percentage of all the capacity we have is currently in use. Okay. Um, And so that was up uh, unexpectedly 1.2% month over month to 76.4%, which beat expectations by fully half a percentage point, which is a a huge beat in, in that world. And this is the first time capacity utilization has exceeded the levels of like January, February, 2020 pre-pandemic since the pandemic began. Um, and in theory, this should provide some relief to inflationary pressures, right? We're making hmm. more stuff. Uh, we're using more of our productive capacity to, uh, to create supply for all that demand. I but, feel like there's a but coming on. But well, you would expect the impact of production levels on pricing to be at least a little bit delayed. Right. So, you know, you've got, it takes time to ship and stock and distribute these items. Um, so the fact that you, you saw 
capacity utilization increase, industrial production reverse course and start increasing in October means that that maybe there will be some impact, you know, starting this month, but who knows what happens going into the holiday season, particularly as some of those consumption uh, patterns are moving earlier because people are expecting a supply crunch, which can be a self-fulfilling prophecy. But it was interesting that the supply side of the economy is is seeing some, is regaining some strength, not just the demand side. Yeah. So it, it, it sounds like, in layman's terms, it sounds like everything is going up. It's not That's, just prices and demand. It's also manufacturing capacity. It's right. like and, everything. And not just turning. <laughs> because keep in mind, we also import a lot of the stuff we consume. Right. So they, uh, we also got numbers today on import prices for October. And those prices are also up 1.2% month on month, 10.7% year on year. So uh, Errol, I think you're exactly right. Like taken together, along with, by the way, the improvements in the job market that we talked about last week, this yeah. feels way less like a stagflation and way more like an economy that is overheating in the traditional sense, hmm. right? Meaning it's, it, you don't have that quagmire of you know, slow growth with, with high price increases, but you, you have you know, very fundamentally uh, the demand in the economy is outstripping the supply in the economy. But I, I wonder how and, much- And, it... and supply, supply is sort of, in that narrative, supply is sort of struggling to keep up. Right. So, so I think part of this inflation story is being painted as like, look at all this government spending that's going on. Uh, and there's a direct kind of causal relationship that is being implied uh, by certain political folks. But it sounds like to me that this is just like, we're coming out of the pandemic. Like the economy is kind of rebounding and like everything is kind of churning and as it churns it overheats like engines as they run they get warm and they start overheating so, so i i think that is broadly right but maybe makes it sound a little too easy uh makes it sound easier to fix than it will be I'll i need that. things in like pictures it's gonna take like uh 10 to 15 more minutes of us talking to truly fix this <laughs> so <laughs> So, so like very straightforwardly, an overheating economy implies you should reduce the stimulus on a policy level, yeah. like fiscal or monetary stimulus that you're providing. Which they're already talking about, right? And, and, and so the fiscal part tends to be longer term actions, right? Affected through tax policy or investments that play out over many years. We did very recently have some short-term fiscal stimulus in the form of, you know, the PPP loans, the direct checks that we've talked about. Um, but this is mostly winding down now. And, and to pull back on some of those measures would, uh, you know, would, would exacerbate the other massive economic problem that's only getting worse, which is inequality. Mm. But monetary stimulus is a little easier. There is, uh, there is an idea implicit in a lot of monetary policymaking called the natural rate of interest. In the US context, this means there's a level of the Fed funds rate that, which is the, the Fed's you know, key uh, rate that they set, which neither lowers nor raises asset prices, right? So, so a, a rate that's too low uh, or that is, is lower than the natural rate would stimulate the economy, a rate that's above it would, uh, would slow down. The economy because you are if the rate is lower you're effectively pushing more money into the economy if the rate's higher you're taking money out of the economy the trick as you might imagine is that no one knows what this rate is i was just about to ask <laughs> uh, a good uh, a good benchmark uh, and one that has been used in sort of a 
you know, somewhat simplistic way uh, for a while is the long-term growth rate of real GDP. Huh. Um, so the, the growth rate of GDP over time, when you, once you factor in inflation. Yeah. Okay. That makes um, sense. And, and we think that that's somewhere around two to 3%, but of course, no one knows what that is too. I uh, bet Larry Summer knows. He certainly, I'm sure thinks he does. Uh, <laughs> so this means that, you know, if, if we are below that 2%, general level for the Fed funds rate, you know, monetary policy is stimulating the economy. If we're higher than that, you could think of it as a tight monetary policy that's putting the brakes on the economy. For almost the entire period since the Great Recession, the Fed funds rate has been below a quarter of a percentage point. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did raise it a bit from 2016 to 2019. It actually got up to like 2.4% for a couple months there, but then quickly went back down to zero when the pandemic hit. Yeah, But that on its own is you know, so it is in theory stimulating the economy, right? That's a, a an easy monetary policy. Uh, it just doesn't seem like we should be stimulating the economy right now. So we'll get to that. Okay. <laughs> you, you add, but you add to that what we talked about last week, which is that even though the Fed has started reducing its bond purchases, it's still buying more than a hundred billion dollars of bonds on the private market every single month to pump even more money into the economy over and above that 0% interest rate. Because we don't want China to buy it? We are essentially running the playbook we ran in the Great Recession. Okay. So the Great Recession, you had a financial crisis. Those tend to take a really long time to come out of the both uh, you know, deep and persistent mm-hmm. recessions. And so we bought a lot of bonds. You know, the Fed bought a lot of bonds for a long time, uh, pumped a yeah, lot of money Yeah, we avoided that. We, we avoided that in part with the buying of, of these bonds, but also with the kind of fi- like fiscal stimulus bills passed during the Trump administration and at the beginning of the Biden administration. Right. But, right? but right now, the actions of the Fed are the exact opposite of what you would want to do in an economy that's overheating. Oh, that's fun. And so the, the Fed, by nature, is cautious and tends to move incrementally and gradually unless it's like an extreme crisis. But it, it just doesn't make sense that coming out of this uh you know, public health shock, which precipitated an economic shock, that we would be in exactly the same monetary policy stance that we were coming out of the financial crisis. It's just two very different worlds. So uh, all to say, I don't think the slow taper of reducing bond buys by a few billion dollars each month from now through the summer is going to cut it. I think we need the Fed to move much more aggressively to tighten monetary policy. Which will probably like tank the stock market in the short term, but then so it'll tank like come is, back. Tank is potentially a stretch. It will certainly spook the market. And yeah. I think the Fed is very mindful of not doing that. And I mean, nobody wants the stock market to like crash or even go down significantly, right? A lot of, a lot of people, a lot of people even who aren't like plutocrats have uh, a lot of their wealth tied up in the stock market. You also can't hold the policy of our country hostage to an ever-increasing uh, S&P 500. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you make it sound so simple, Mike. <laughs> well, now let's, let's look at the fiscal policy side of it. Yeah. Talk fiscal policy to us, Mike. So in, in Keynesian economics, uh, government spending has what they call a multiplier effect, meaning the government spends money, pays it out to companies and employees, then those companies and employees pay other companies and employees and so on. More government spending, in theory, helps to stimulate growth over and above just the dollar amount the government spends. Um, and then less spending would would hinder growth for the same reasons. I'm having uh, like not positive flashbacks to freshman economics. 
So, so you know, when you have an overheating economy, in by the same theory, you would want to spend less as the government to right. uh, to Which stop stimulating the economy, right. and that is actually what we're seeing. So, last quarter in Q3 of this year, uh, there was a disappointing GDP growth number of two percent, and one major drag on this number was that federal government spending actually fell by four point seven percent in the third quarter, as uh, mostly as the PPP loans stopped going out. The only thing that's not overheating is the GDP. Well, it's, it's, this is just to say that I think fiscal policy is moving more in line with what you would want and expect to counter an overheating economy than monetary policy is right now. Got it. I think now, you're one of five people in the world that know the difference between fiscal and monetary policy, but please. <laughs> so maybe we should have said that up front. Fiscal policy is government spending controlled by the Congress. Monetary policy is controlled. The money supply is controlled by the Fed. Now, the problem in our current moment, which is related to the terrible messaging we've discussed around the Build Back Better bill, is that because you have a bill that involves the government spending money, it's being construed as a fiscal stimulus. The intent of the Build Back Better bill actually is to be a long-term economic plan to fight climate change, bolster employment, and reduce inequality. But for some reason, no one in the Democratic Party seems capable of communicating that. Hmm. So you now have Joe Manchin in the last week saying he's even more worried about approving the bill than he was due to inflation concerns. The White House saying the bill will actually bring inflation down, which is an argument that I don't know if it's wrong. I don't know if it's right. Most economists seem to think there is like there are some parts of the bill that would bring inflation down. There are other parts that would put inflationary pressures on net. It's probably neutral to really nobody knows, but to go out and make like a full-throated argument that this bill spending $1.85 trillion is designed to bring inflation down just seems kind of silly and, and unnecessary and not really the strongest ground that Biden and the Democrats want to be fighting on. Well, I think, I think it's related to this, you know, their response to how are you going to pay for the Build Back Better and stuff is that this is going to be revenue neutral over time. Um, this is not going to add to the national debt is essentially what they're saying. And so if it's not ad adding to the national debt, then, you know, theoretically, it's going to have some other sort of side positive benefit. And maybe that's but it look messaging that's about as clear as mud as far as I'm concerned. So ultimately, the, you know, the explainer for the economic crisis and the crisis of confidence and the public health crisis we're still facing is COVID-19. Yeah, uh, and we we did see some promising news on that front this week. So, uh, in the last week, Pfizer announced the release of an experimental treatment uh, pill for COVID nineteen. They actually stopped the trials on early because it was like too effective, hmm. and they said we we can't keep this out of the world uh, for longer than we absolutely need to. And this so is like, for people who get COVID. This is for people who get COVID if they take this pill within three days like the deaths and hospitalizations come down by more than 90%. Interesting. I wonder if there's an impact of that pill on transmission. Probably not. Like you still have to like isolate, but it's, it's you're not going to be like hospitalized. Ultimately, like if you are removing the risk of hospitalization and death, or at least drastically reducing it, these other crises kind of melt away. Yeah. Then you've got like a, a bad flu that. Right. You no longer need to shut yeah. anything down. You no longer need to, even 
place the same emphasis on vaccinations that we need to right now. Yeah. Right. If this, if this pill becomes affordable and ubiquitous and available to everyone and anyone who gets this virus, the crisis is over. Like that's amazing. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that way. Presumably this is not just happening in the United States with this pill. So uh, this week, actually today, being Tuesday of this week, they announced a deal with the UN's, this Pfizer announced a deal with the UN's medicines patent pool to allow their new pill to be produced by generic drug manufacturers and sold cheaply in 95 poor countries covering 53% of the world's population. Wow. Uh, Merck also has a treatment and announced a similar deal last month. So uh, very promising, not just for the dual or triple crises we're facing in the U.S., but around the world. Wow. Can we just end the episode right there? <laughs> <laughs> like, holy shit. Yeah. Um, so that, that would be huge and is extremely promising and hopeful. And, um, and I mean, I think that also creates an opportunity for Joe Biden and the other message makers and policymakers in public service right now yeah. to, you know, maybe it's a state of the union play. It probably needs to start sooner than that though, which is if, if this treatment fulfills the promise it has shown in clinical trials and early rollout, we need to change our mindset and we need to like recognize and communicate that we are shifting our stance away from crisis management and mm. back toward uh, a sense of normalcy. You know, what it means is even if you have localized outbreaks, there's no need to shut down the economy or other institutions, right? It's just something you can treat like any other disease uh, effectively. And that addresses the public health crisis, which in turn addresses the economic crisis, which in turn addresses the psychosocial crisis. That I think those crises together, all with COVID-19 at the root, explain like 95% of the negative news we are seeing day in and day out in the news and just the sense of malaise and, uh, and, you know, mm. personal stagnation that people are feeling. And I think if, if we can truly turn the page on this, as it felt like we were doing back in like May and June, you know, mm. when, when the vaccines were rolling out, there wasn't necessarily, it wasn't clear how entrenched the, uh, resistance would be to vaccines. And it obviously wasn't clear that the Delta variant would throw a wrench into everything. But I think we're kind of getting back to that moment. And if we can communicate that effectively and actually deliver on it, it changes the whole game and the whole national and global ethos for the next year and going forward. Yeah. I mean, not to be Debbie Donner, but like if the anti-vaxxers actually take the pill, I think your point still holds. The, the conspiracy theories that I've heard on this so far are that the Pfizer pill is actually just ivermectin under a different name. And if that's the play that they're going to make, I mean, <laughs> to, to say, it's fine. You know what? Go for it. Like, okay. <laughs> like hashtag whatever it takes. Exactly. <laughs> Maybe they can just make the pill really large. So people think that it's a horse pill. Well, and I also think it's a, a very different sell to say, go in and see your doctor, your local pharmacist and get these two shots when you're perfectly fine. Otherwise, than it is to say, You're you need sick. to go to the hospital and you might die unless you take this one pill. Yeah, no, that's, I, I think that's really true. Well, listen, I, be, before you got into that last bit, I was going to say, 
Mike will fix it when he places an op-ed in the uh, in the Wall Street Journal about <laughs> the economy. But I, but I almost think that, that like Pfizer fixed it. Yeah, yeah, and and by extension, we fixed it. And by extension, we fixed it because we talked about Pfizer, and that's just as important. <laughs> News and Bruce bump. <laughs> uh, cool, man. Well, it's great to see you. Uh, fun Pleasure as always. always see you next week. See ya. News and Brews is hosted by Mike Heslin and Aero Yabake. Our producer is Lana Nevins. This episode was recorded Tuesday, November 16th, 2021 at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Look out for new episodes available each Wednesday on all major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening.